Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors. Ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. When sociologists explain why men and women have different careers, different interests, and different priorities, they rely on socialization as an explanation. But is that explanation complete? Today I'm talking to sociologist Charlotte Stern about this question. We'll be discussing her paper, Undoing Insularity, a small study of gender sociology's big problem, and her book chapter, Does Political Ideology Hinder Insights on Gender and Labor Markets? published in The Politics of Social Psychology, edited by Jared Crawford and Lee Jessen. Because of audio problems, Charlotta and I had to record this interview in two parts, so you'll notice a small change in audio quality in the middle of the episode. We jumped directly into a discussion of Steven Pinker's The Blank Slate and the chapter on gender in that book. If you're unfamiliar with The Blank Slate, it's an argument against what Pinker considers three pernicious ideas, one of which is the idea of the blank slate, the idea that the mind has no innate content. There's a chapter in the book on gender in which Pinker differentiates equity feminism from gender feminism. Equity feminism is a moral doctrine of equal political and legal rights. Gender feminism, in his words, is, quote, an empirical doctrine committed to three claims. The first is that the differences between men and women have nothing to do with biology, but are socially constructed in their entirety. The second is that humans possess a single social motive, power, and that social life can be understood only in terms of how it is exercised. The third is that human interactions arise not from the motives of people dealing with each other as individuals, but from the motives of groups dealing with other groups, in this case the male gender dominating the female gender." End quote. He then describes the flaws with these perspectives, drawing on uh, evidence from biology and evolutionary psychology, arguing that evidence doesn't support gender feminism. So here's my conversation with Charlotte Stern. Some of your interest in gender came from reading Steven Pinker. What motivated you as a sociologist to read Steven Pinker? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I guess it was all the fuss that he caused, uh, at least. I, and I'm not sure really what brought Steven Pinker to my knowledge or like to my frame or awareness. Uh, but I heard so much about it. And it's such a provocative title for a sociologist. Um, so, you know, you kind of feel like you need to look into what what, what what's his take on the world, so to speak? And so I did. I read Steven Pinker, and um, I was I uh, you know for a sociologist, it, it's it's it was kind of challenging, uh, especially I think the uh, the um, chapter on gender. But you know, as as soon as I started reading and thinking, and you know, you're dwelling in it, and you're like thinking, like, oh, this is really, huh? I didn't know this, and you know, no one ever told me about these kinds of issues before, and right. so it's a little bit upsetting, and you're like, huh, my worldview sort of suddenly started changing. But I got over it, right? And so I started thinking, like, this is really interesting stuff, and and then I started reading some more, and just like for my own entertainment sort of and um and yeah and and um so that's how it all started or at least that's how it started for me 
Okay, so we're talking about the blank slate year. What year did you read that? Do you recall? I think a couple of, perhaps a year or two after it was published. Uh, so it had had time to get on the, you know, top list of books and stuff. And it was around, uh, I think, in, and Steven Pinker was active on YouTube. And, you, you know, you, he was here and there. Okay. And so you took those insights from Steven Pinker, and you decided to take on Undoing Gender by Weston Zimmerman, one of the most influential articles in the sociology of gender. Um, so for our listeners, can you describe that article? So, Doing Gender was published in the 1980s, and it's one of these articles that have changed the field of gender sociology, I feel, uh, in that uh, the argument that we're doing gender is so fundamental in our everyday existence. Uh, so we, the minute we're born, we're, we're treated different uh, uh, as women or men, and we're sort of stuck in this role of being your gender and in everyday interactions and, and when you meet new people or in any kind of social interaction, you're recreating your gender, so to speak. And that's what doing gender sort of means is that you can't really escape always kind of portraying your gender. Is that, I, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I've read the article and that's how I would probably phrase it. I guess the gist of it is that you um, often effortfully do things that are appropriate for your gender. That's right. And so other people observe you and they are re the, the idea is reinforced that those things are appropriate for your gender. And if you deviate too much, people are going to sanction you for not being appropriate uh, for your gender. Um, right. So, yeah, um, and it's very influential. I think in my department, we've had courses called Doing Gender um, at, at a graduate level. And so it's, it's a very sort of um, common notion, I think, in gender sociology that this is something that's, you know, regarded as like key insights on human interaction. Right. I mean, the, the article is somewhat unclear on whether these behaviors are consciously or unconsciously motivated. I think that it's both. Uh, but I think, I think in my reading, it's mostly unconscious. We're not, we're not really aware of doing it, at least not lay people. I guess you could say that, you know, enlightened sociologists, of course, know that this is what's going on. But, you know, just in general, when people go about living their lives, they are not going to be aware of the fact that they're constantly rec recreating gender norms, um, I would okay. say. Okay. So you decided to take on that article by writing Undoing Insularity, partly inspired by Steven Pinker. So mm -hmm. tell me about that article. Well. It was actually, believe it or not, intended to be a blog post for heterodox. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's how it started out. Uh, and and um, I started writing an article on, on um, why, it's, why I think it is a problem uh, that there's such a one-sided ideology um, when it comes to gender and, and with with emphasis on the labor market stuff, which is where I mostly do my research. Uh, but as a sort of check on myself in some fashion, I, I decided to 
test the assumption that that gender studies or gender sociology was insular or, or you know, unable to take in new ideas by using doing gender as a, as a sort of a baseline point, uh, because it is such an important classic in, in the field. And so I, I figured I would need to have a starting point. And my starting point, since, my, since I myself became aware of Steven Pinker, <laughs> uh, I figured like if I became aware of Steven Pinker and sort of the blank slate challenge, right? Because it is a challenge, he, very much of what he, I mean, even the title of the book uh, is like it, it, the blank slate. And I think uh, um, the subtitle reads something to the denial of human nature, right? I mean, right, something along those lines. Yeah, I know the word denial is in there. Yeah, um, and um, so I figured, like, okay, so let's see what ha you know in in the literature that sort of cites doing gender has Steven Pinker's ideas made any impact? Basically, sort of asking, like, okay, does he does people now in the field talk about? the potential that there are actually like, you know, biological differences between women and men or, or something along those lines. And so how do you test that idea, right? I mean, it's a huge literature and, you know, I, I didn't really know where to start. So I started out thinking like, okay, how, how would you test that? So I, I, I picked out two articles, the high, most highly cited articles uh, for a period of years uh, from 2002 when Steve Pinker was uh, published. And I um, picked the two most highly cited articles for each year up to 2017. And so I, I had like a sample of, of important, I was thinking, uh, scholarly work citing doing gender, and so I, I start. That's that was kind of my sample, and it's a small sample, of course, but you know it was like just a. I, I'm not intending it to be anything but a small sample, but but I, I went through all the articles, and I kind of coded them in terms of like did they discuss, uh, you know, bi potential biological difference ideas. And um, I found that one did out of my sample of 23. Uh, so yeah, not much of an impact of Pinker there. Did you think about examining other articles? I did, uh, especially since I got the, um, I, you know, it started out, this, this whole project with the article study started out as, as actually like thinking of a blog post for Heterodox Academy uh, in the beginning. And, um, and then I wasn't so concerned about sort of be doing a real thing. Um, of course, I could have been more ambitious in including more articles um, in the top tier. But as it is, I think that it's sort of, the method is kind of, at least for the highly cited research, sort of the high profile stuff out there. Uh, I think, you know, the two highest cited, you know, is, 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 it's not a bad method to approach what people are talking about and what people are citing. So, you know, I'm not sure that including many more would have changed the results. 
However, um, I think that having included perhaps, um, see, one thing that happened after I had published the report, uh, the, the report was that one of the gender studies persons contacted me and said that, you know, only using highly cited research misses stuff that's going on underneath. Um, and so if I were to do anything more on, on sort of using a similar method, it would perhaps be to look at less cited research instead to see what's going on in there. Because of course in the um, sort of the mainstream gender studies, the highly cited stuff um, might just be the mainstream. And then if you want to actually study change and, and seeing if some, somehow biological difference ideas are infiltrating, maybe you should look underneath the top, so to speak. And I think that would be a cool sort of future study. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I mean, one drawback of sociology in general is that uh, sociologists rely on interview methods and surveys. Mm -hmm. And especially with interview methods, it's really hard to assess how much genetic influence there is on your behavior or how much evolutionary influence, because we just don't have insight into that when we reflect on ourselves. Introspection just tends to bring up these other sure. accounts of our behavior. Yeah. So, uh, but I think there has been a change to some degree. I think because of the interest in health sociology, there's now a little, there's um, somewhat better knowledge among sociologists about the influence of genes on, on human health. So sociologists sure. uh, in the U.S. are, sociologists in training at least, are learning a little bit about genes and heritability. So that's a good development. Oh, I agree. I agree. Uh, I think that there was there was actually a, a study that I cited in in uh, either in the um, undoing insularity piece or in the book chapter uh, where where someone asked sociologists about beliefs in evolutionary stuff uh, and I think when it comes to certain like health issues uh, I think ninety you know high percent of the questioned sociologists agreed that there was a biological influence um, and about half thought that it made you know that biological ideas made dif made a sense when it came to gender so so you know in certain areas it's more I think acknowledged and in other areas it's it's you know the the hesitance of sociologists to believe in biological differences is higher, so to speak. That's correct. I mean, gender differences and genes in general may also just be a bigger topic in the popular press over the next few years. So maybe there'll be more sure. more general public awareness of that. Now, um, there have been a couple of interesting developments. So just before you published the article, there was an article in Sociological Theory called the genomic challenge to the social construction of race, and social theory is mm -hmm. a pretty high-impact journal. So, mm -hmm. there you so go. that got out there, and then in psychological science, a pretty high-impact psych journal. The there was an article on the gender equality paradox this year, which uh -huh. I think largely started as a research in the Nordic countries mm -hmm. uh, about how gender differences in career interests are actually larger in gender equal countries because there's less economic Indeed. pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is that something that's a topic of discussion in Sweden nowadays? I don't think so. Um, 
actually, uh, although it should be, of course. I think that in most people, uh, sort of, in, uh, if I'm, I'm talking about the general public now, not, not scholars, uh, but I, among the general public, I think that uh, we still think that there's something, um, there's something pushing girls away from STEM fields, for instance. I mean, that would be like if you read the newspapers about why aren't there more female engineers? Um, there would be the exp the typical explanation would be that you know girls are not encouraged to do math or it's unfeminine or whatever. But you know, uh, and I think that it's I mean in in that sense, sociology has been extremely successful in Sweden and in um, sort of spreading sort of this view of the world as there's very little differences between the genders and uh, what differences there are either discriminatory or, you know, socialization based. Um, and that, of course, needs change before real progress can be made, I think. There was a documentary made in Norway about five or six years ago. I think yes. it was called Brainwashed. I don't know the Norwegian yes. name for it, but you can see it on YouTube. Yeah, Nevask. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's yeah. still on YouTube and Vimeo. I can include a link to it. The first episode was called The Gender Equality Paradox. And it was either that episode or a later episode specifically on gender, perhaps, that included an interview with Steven Pinker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. Did it, I don't know if that was popular in Sweden. I feel, I think it made some waves in Norway. Oh, sure, it did. And I think it changed... Um discourse a lot in Norway. Uh, the, the guy who is a sociologist, you know, he's also some kind of comedian, I believe. Uh, he approached actually Swedish television and asked if he could do something similar in Sweden. And they, they declined the offer. So he tried to actually like develop a, a similar study or no, maybe it wasn't him actually, maybe it was another guy who did it, but nevertheless, um, so, so Swedish state television wasn't interested in, in doing like a Swedish version of that show, unfortunately. It would have been fun, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think because it's online, it garners some interest every year. Sure. Yes, of course. And and um, amongst people who, who are more evolutionary inspired, that kind of stuff, of course, is, is mainstream and just like, yeah, obviously. Um, but I'm talking to the other guys and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to you know, uh, think how to reach out outside of just the already committed, or so to speak, I don't know what you say, the already friendly to biological difference ideas. Right. So you also have a chapter in the book edited by Lee Jessam and uh, Jared Crawford. Tell me a bit about that chapter. Uh, it's a chapter on gender differences again, uh, but more so so Lee and Jared contacted me. Uh, we we co-authored a piece in, in Behavioral and Brain Sciences about why political homogeneity is a problem in social psychology. And when they approached me after that, they had said, okay, so we we now said that it's a problem. We need we need to sort of talk about why it is a problem and give examples of when it is a problem. And uh, since I've been doing sociology of work and, and uh, organizational sociology, um, and and been I've been writing stuff about gender um, differences in career choices and um, in um, and stuff like that. Over the years, so I'm I'm quite 
familiar with the literature uh, on gender. So I figured like, okay, that would be my low hanging fruit. I can sort of include, you know, sort of the pinker knowledge and ask questions about gender differences that are, are really not asked in today's gender studies. Uh, so that's what I tried to do. So it's really like a very kind of, uh, the, the book chapter itself, I think, is, is more about trying to say, like, here's an area where we don't ask the right questions, or at least we don't include hypotheses about whether or not, you know, biological differences could be some, somewhat related to differences we see today. Um, and so I talk about, you know, uh, the gender segregation in the workplace, uh, and I talk about differences in leadership and, and stuff like that. Not really, like, for someone who's really already um, sort of well-versed in biological difference ideas, I think it will be sort of very kind of, yeah, obviously. Um, but for those who are not, I think it, it's a shocking, you know, Mm -hmm. <laughs> book chapter perhaps i don't really perhaps. know but you know, yeah i'm thinking that it is i mean you've been writing about taboos and and just like no no go zones well i published one blog post a while ago on heterodox academy i think it might have been 2015 mm -hmm. early 2016 about taboos sure yeah i see yeah so maybe that's why uh, I, yeah well and actually you know my my american sociologist article from 2015 15 also had a section on taboos and how one reason that political homogeneity is is bad for a discipline is some topics become taboo topics exactly so so this is very much along that that those lines uh in sort of saying that gender sociologists are so wedded to the idea that there shouldn't be any differences or very slim differences between women and men so when they see differences they think that you know there has to be something wrong you know either discrimination or or wrongful socialization of, of boys and girls or or what have you but but they're that they're you know that differences cannot just be differences they're they're somehow always a, a sign of inequality um, right and i and i think and i think um that is impoverishing our science. I think it, it, it's since people don't really theorize about, you know, potential differences playing a role in how we live our lives, um, you know, we end up perhaps, you know, creating problems where there are no problems. And um, we, we definitely end up not asking questions about you know the potential impact of these other types of, of mechanisms and um, I think that is um, that that's not good for a science have you by chance had any conference talks or presentations where you've brought up this these ideas and had pushback and how did that go when this paper was first published it, it created quite a stir in my department um, and so I um, I was asked to do a seminar presentation um, in sort of locally, which I did. And um, it was, um, well, let's just say that the room was fully packed <laughs> with, 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 with people. 
so it was it created quite a lively interest interest among my uh, colleagues. Um, and um, however, I I I think I once you start actually like presenting the evidence and talking about it in a very kind of matter-of-factly way, I have a sense that people just kind of, huh, got the reaction, you know. So I think that I, um, I don't, I don't really, I mean, of course, I don't really know what people are talking about behind the scenes when I'm not there and everything, but I, at least at the seminar, I, I, I found that people were interested, curious, somewhat hostile, and, and, you know, the typical reading into what I'm saying, other stuff than what I'm actually saying, uh, that, that of course, went on. But, you know, I could, when I, you know, when you're presenting, you can always push back and say, I didn't, I didn't actually say that women were more stupid than, or, you know, like, whatever. Right. Uh, but, so, yeah. I think that it was a very um, civil discourse, I would say. That's good. And I'm very, you know, so in, in some sense, I'm, I'm very happy. And then all my invited presentations has been to friendly audiences, <laughs> more or less. I have been uh, presenting it in uh, semi-friendly settings, uh, but, but it's always been quite, you know, quite civil i haven't really experienced any real you know yeah no, no real controversy or or conflict when i've been talking about these issues so you know i maybe i've been lucky but i, don't, I haven't really but I, you know i haven't been around too much either so i shouldn't you know i have also i haven't been marketing this stuff um at all okay I've just sort of mildly put it out there without sort of doing much more than that. <laughs> well, the fact that you didn't get severe pushback is quite encouraging. Um, it is. I think in the U.S. it would vary quite a bit by department, but you definitely... I think uh, so, too. Well, you definitely hurt your chances of tenure if you were pre-tenured here. I, I have a sense that the um, polarization is much more strongly enforced. Also, I, I mean... There's cultural differences between Sweden and, and the U.S. I mean, Swedes don't really like conflict. So uh, even if we have, you know, even if people hate what you're saying, they're not going to react to it the same way that, that um, you know, Americans will. I see. Yeah, I, I guess there's that. Well, I know there's this element of not wanting to stick out too much in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And we are quite a consensus-oriented culture. So, you know, people try to get along. Um, so, you know, <laughs> maybe that's partly what's going on. Yeah. I mean, in the long run, that probably is, is a good thing. I don't really know. There's, there's, of course, pros and cons of all cultural traits. But, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to saying controversial things in a seminar setting, maybe it's nicer, at least for the person presenting. <laughs> right. Well, you know, there's academic environments are, are somewhat restrained. So I don't know if people mm -hmm. would necessarily lash out at you, but they might be hostile in other ways. Yeah. Is this chapter, I, well, it's in uh, the Jessamyn Crawford's book, but for people who don't have access to the book, is there an open source version online? 
Yeah, there is. I have a working paper at, actually in um, in in a yeah at Rozio, the where I where I work okay. part time. Or uh, I can send you the link if you want to put it up there. Sure, I'll put that up in the show notes too. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been quite fun. You can find links to Charlotte's webpage and her article and chapter in the show notes, where you'll also find links to the documentary and the other papers that we discussed. The next episode of Half Hour of Heterodoxy features Lucia Martinez Valdivia, professor at Reed College, followed by Tanya Reynolds, social psychologist at the Kinsey Institute for Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. After that, we'll have a Thanksgiving episode with guest hosts Deb Mashek and Richard Davies, interviewing author A.J. Jacobs, author of several books, including Thanks a Thousand, A Gratitude Journey, The Year of Living Biblically, and My Life as an Experiment. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.